0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason, as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Thank you, Peter. We're here, of course, not to honor Henry Manhee, but We're here to honor one of the great towering figures of intellect in the world in the 20th and early 21st century, Jim Buchanan. I have a rather extraordinary panel. One might say, uh, what's, what's a mere lawyer, law dean, have to do with anything like this? Well, give you a little background, Jim Buchanan and I have a lot in common. First of all, we're both from Tennessee. Not many people know that. We both went to college in Tennessee. We both left Tennessee and went to the University of Chicago. As a matter of fact, we overlapped there. We about the same time. And then after lots and lots of moves, we finally found our proper home-home feeling at George Mason. We enjoyed quite a few years here together. My connection personally, however, with public choice theory and, and therefore with Jim began in 1962 when I read to my utter amazement a book called The Calculus of Consent. I was just totally uh, <laughs> enamored of it. And I said, you know, this is, this is something that the lawyers and the legal scholars have been looking for and needing for a long time. And so I wrote a review of the book, which I think I'm guessing, because it wasn't easy in those days, five or six major journals turned down. I was able to lean on my own local review. George Washington University published the review. And I can tell you, it is the only review ever written of that book in a law review. About six years later, I was a professor at the University of Rochester. Teaching economics, I was in the political science department with Bill Riker and Dick Fenno. Fenno was then the editor of the American Political Science Review, and he too confessed that no political science review had reviewed that book. Well, uh, with pressure from me and from Riker, that was remedied, and the rest is certainly the better part of intellectual history. There was one other similarity. Jim, and uh, of course with Gordon Tullock in a oversimplified fashion, you might say, introduced uh, the great analytical power of economics to the field of political science, of political activity. Uh, <clears throat> I had, was very active, as uh, Peter mentioned, in doing the same thing with law. And thereby, both those fields that had been extremely moribund intellectually, theretofore, came alive. They are very different uh, fields today, each I think worthy of being in a university than they were back in in the days before public choice theory. At any rate, I've had my say about law and economics, which is not otherwise noted on the program, and so to the more serious business that you're here for. Our first uh, speaker... Amartya Sen is the Thomas W. Lamont University Professor and Professor of Economics and Philosophy at Harvard University. From 1998 until recently, he was also the Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. In 1998, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for his work in welfare economics and social choice. Dr. Sen is best known for his work on the causes of famine, and his research led to the development of solutions for limiting the effects of food shortages. Great pleasure to introduce Amartya Sen.
2: Well, first of all, let me say um, how delighted I am to be here on this occasion. Jim has been a leading light in not only the thinking of Great many economists across the world, but more personally, in my case, in my own thinking, great um, honor and, and great privilege to be here at this time. I'm very aware that Jim Buchanan's followers, people influenced by him, come from many different schools of thought, and I would be surprised if everyone agreed with what I'm going to say. In fact, I would be very disappointed if that were to happen. <laughs> and hopefully, it wouldn't happen. Anyway, let me get going on, 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 on the task then. I'd like to thank uh, Henry Manning for his kind introduction. I didn't get the point about the stable food price either, <laughs> but, but perhaps someday you can tell me where you got that from. Uh, more than 200 years ago, in 1807, William Wordsworth wrote, I quote, Every great and original writer, in proportion as he is great and original, must himself create the taste by which he is to be relished. I thought of this Wordsworthian remark as I contemplated the different aspects of the greatness of James Buchanan. His originality has been so striking and so far-reaching that it is easy to identify his greatness with any of his many powerful contributions. Depending on your own priorities, you can try to place Buchanan's greatness in contributions. So depending on your priorities, you can try to place Buchanan's greatness in contributions, such as the founding of public choice theory, or generating an understanding of the demands of constitutional thinking, or clarifying the connection between markets and liberties. In an obvious sense, each of these answers, and there are several others, would be a plausible diagnosis of the greatness of Jim Buchanan. And yet none of these distinct answers pointing to specific contributions, nor the totality of such answers, can quite capture the way Buchanan has enriched economic, political, and legal thinking. Buchanan has, in addition to all this, created a profoundly important taste, in the Wordsworthian sense, for sophistication in social thought, particularly in relation to the role of public discussion and of human interaction in society. If the importance of institutions, which Buchanan has emphasized throughout his life, is one of the basis of this cultivated taste, Buchanan persistent pointer to the interaction between people is certainly another. Let me use the short time that I have in commenting briefly on the role of a major hero of mine in pursuing this line of reasoning, even though, as I already mentioned, I'm very aware that no one assessment of Buchanan's outstanding achievement, seen from any perspective, will satisfy all others to whom Buchanan is also a hero. But for what it is worth, here is my take on the task that I've been given. Let me begin by invoking not so much Frank Knight and uh, Wixell, who were Buchanan's own heroes, but the much earlier enterprise of what is now called the European Enlightenment. As it happens, Knight and Wixell actually do fit into that long history. Many Enlightenment thinkers in the 18th century, from Adam Smith, and Immanuel Kant to Marquis de Condorcet wanted a society in which reasoning rather than fate would be supreme, and in which public reasoning would be one of the principal aspects of human interaction. The origin of the expression, government by discussion, describing democracy thus, may be attributed to Walter Badgett or to John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, but that is also what Smith and Kant and Condorcet were substantively seeking in the previous century through their own political philosophies. However, taste for and the acceptance of public reasoning are not easy to achieve. While Smith and Kant remain largely academic thinkers, Condorcet, who also was a practical activist, failed in his attempt to generate a tolerant and interactive society in France, so much so that he himself was threatened with the imminent prospect of execution during the reign of terror following the revolution. He chose to take his own life before others could do the killing. James Buchanan's leadership in social thinking, of which his pioneering role in establishing the new discipline of public choice theory, the part, has been deeply concerned with creating, through arguments as well as advocacy, a climate of public reasoning. This has not only been a major line of emphasis in Buchanan's own writings, it has also helped to give shape to his other commitments, for example, to democracy, to liberty, to constitutional political economy, to the use of market economy, and even to the understanding of the basic principles of public finance. His efforts have not been aimed to establishing some dazzling new theorem or analytical result, but with changing the entire climate of social decision-making. Let me illustrate the connection involved by commenting in particular on the relation between Buchanan's public choice theory and Arrow's social choice theory. The Marquis de Converse did pioneering work, along with other French mathematicians, like Jean-Charles de Borda, on the analytical and mathematical aspects of interpersonal aggregation. And it is to that that the Aerovian social choice theory traces um, in that, that the Aerobian social choice theory traces its early ancestry. But Condorcet was also deeply concerned with public reasoning, which could change people's views and priorities rather than taking their preferences, which are to be aggregated, as being simply given. By clarifying the role of that momentous engagement in this truly outstanding pair of articles in the Journal of Political Economy in 1954, and I still remember my thrill when I first read these as a student, they can immensely enrich the subject matter with which social choice as well as public choice, has to be centrally engaged. In contrast with Arrow's initial inclination, as Arrow himself put it, I quote, to assume that individual values are taken as data and are not capable of being altered by the nature of the decision process itself, unquote, Buchanan insisted that, I quote, seeing democracy as government by discussion implies that individual values can and do change in the process of decision-making, It can be claimed that it is only through Buchanan's expansion of Arrow's departure that we can do justice to what we may call the enlightenment enterprise of advancing rational decision-making in societies, which lies at the foundation of democratic modernity. At the risk of some self-indulgence, let me illustrate the relevance of this issue by referring to a subject in which I've been myself involved. One of the striking features in the history of famines in the world is that they never occur in a functioning democratic society. In explaining this empirical phenomenon, it's not adequate to point to the fact that democratic voting procedures give potential famine victims a vote a vote which could bring a government down if the government did not take adequate steps to prevent famines. The complete inadequacy of this explanation lies in the fact that only a very small proportion of the population is struck by a famine, typically 5% or less, almost never more than 10%. In my 15 years of studying famine, over the centuries and across the world, I've never come across one which affected more than 10. I think the Irish is probably the largest we ever had, eight Irish 1840s. How can such a small proportion of voters acting according to their own self-interest become such a potent force in preventing famines through electoral democracy? The theory of majority decision will have absolutely nothing to offer in providing an explanation here. There's a particular need in this context to examine value formation that results from public discussion of altogether miserable events in generating sympathy and political commitment on the part of citizens to do something to prevent the occurrence of such disasters. It is that process which is an integral aspect of the role of public reasoning that Buchanan has emphasized and made us understand, which makes democracy as government by discussion, a central aspect of the prevention of disaster social events, such as famine. So we have to turn to value formation rather than given values, majority decision, to seek an explanation. In, I can go many other examples. In considering this example, it might be tempting to think that this Buchananian line of reasoning in terms of value formation to public discussion works only by denying another allegedly Buchananian precept to wit, taking human beings to be fixated only on the pursuit of self-interest, particularly drawing clue from parts of the calculus of content, is the domination of self-interest in human behavior not another basic principle of public choice theory? advanced by the same Buchanan? And is that not a necessary part of seeing the role of market economy for generating economic efficiency? Is this not then some self-contradiction in Buchanan's own integrated position? This line of questioning arises, I believe, from a total misunderstanding of Buchanan's sophisticated reasoning about human behavior and social interaction. Buchanan takes human beings as they are and as they reason and interact with each other. And in this picture, self-interest does indeed play a role because we have reason for self-interest in many contexts. But it's not the only influence on human behavior. To say that, and I quote from Buchanan, a model of self-interest and motivation necessarily becomes acceptable to a degree, unquote from Buchanan, which is adequate in showing the place of egoistic incentives in human behavior, and, and this is an important point, in generating market efficiency, does not require us to assume, as Birkainen himself points out, I quote from him again, this is from Freedom in Constitutional Contract, self-interest as commonly understood, this is Birkainen, self-interest as commonly understood, or even utility maximization in its broadest sense, can support the explanatory burden placed upon it by—it does not require you to uh, uh, assume—there's a negation there—can support the explanatory burden placed upon it by the most extreme of modern economic imperialists, unquote. Self-interest—so this is not something which is needed and is not something that he's subscribing to indeed he is denying—self-interest pursuit is seen by Buchanan as only quote-unquote, a part of human motivation, which is, in fact, all that is needed for the markets to work. This is a point that's quite often misunderstood because this whole idea that you have a entirely self-interest, no other motivation, in order to explain that markets work is a complete caricature of the reasoning that enters in economic decision-making in any field, including in, in, in the market economy, a point that Adam Smith knew with crystal clarity, and, and so that Buchanan. And indeed, as Buchanan goes on to explain, I quote from Buchanan again, this position allows me to accept, with Aristotle and with everyone else, that man is indeed a social animal, and also to accept, with Adam Smith, an important role in human action for sympathy for, with fellow human beings, unquote. There is thus no need for any willing suspension of this belief in seeing the role that Buchanan gives to incentives and no need to make human beings the base and narrow-minded creatures that they emphatically are not. If the taste that Buchanan contributes to advancing is one of human broadening through public interaction and reasoning, there's nothing there that goes against the rightful recognition of the place of markets in society on which Buchanan rightly insists. That place must not be confused with giving it a solitary role in creating a good society, or even an efficient economy. To the extent that a market economy cannot deal with a problem which may demand other interactive institutions, there is again no tension in Buchanan's overall position. As he puts it, I quote from Buchanan again, the market economy, basically as described by Adam Smith, is a necessary part of the social order. Not the point that is necessary rather than sufficient that being said, Indeed, perhaps its most important part. But the economy cannot function in vacuum. It must be incorporated in and be, be, must be understood to be incorporated incorporated in a structure of law and institutions. Unquote. The choice and functioning of these other institutions remain again, as part of social decisions to be taken through public decision and social interchange of the kind that Buchanan has discussed in many places, including in the Freedom in Constitutional Contract. I take the liberty to remark, at the end of this presentation, on what I believe to be an important aspect of Jim Buchanan's work, that the social engagement on which Buchanan has placed his focus and for which he has developed the tra- taste and we've tried to develop in taste and with some success, because it's a very hard problem to generate a taste for public reasoning, is particularly important to bear in mind when solving the problem the world faces today. Whether we are concerned with global warming or other environmental challenges or with the crippling unemployment that we have in some economies today, and a stalled global economy, the need for interactive public reasoning has never been stronger. and I don't mind acknowledging, as a social choice theory, you even mentioned that I got a prize connected with that, uh, that it is to Buchanan's leadership in that, that we have to look for the fulfillment of what I take to be the Enlightenment vision of how to create a, a great world. The cultivation of the taste for public reasoning in an open-minded way, which Jim Buchanan has done so much to advance, is one of the features of his greatness for which economists and other social scientists, and indeed the world at large, have much reason to be grateful. I feel very privileged indeed to be here in honoring Jim Buchanan today. Thank you.
1: Our next speaker is Professor Eleanor Ostrom. She is the Arthur F. Bentley Professor of Political Science and Senior Research Director of the Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at Indiana University in Bloomington. In 2009, she received the Nobel Prize in Economic Science for her analysis of economic governance, especially the commons. Dr. Ostrom was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1991, member of the National Academy of Science in 2001. She is past president of the American Political Science Association and has been the president of the Public Choice Society, the Midwest Political Science Association, and the International Association for the Study of Common Property. Dr. Ostrom has served on numerous advisory and editorial boards and has been a consultant for various task force committees. It's a great pleasure to introduce Dr. Eleanor Ostrom.
3: Thank you very, very much. It is an honor for me to be invited here and I greatly appreciate the opportunity I think uh, Amatra and I will be doing uh, the philosophical end and the empirical end, and uh, uh, we'll be talking about Jim's influence. See, his influence is across everything. (laughs) So so I am very glad to share my deep obligation to the contribution that James Buchanan has made to all of our lives. Uh, Jim affected my life in many ways. One, his scholarship has affected the way I have thought and the foundation for an immense amount of empirical work. But I also want to mention that his graciousness has been appreciated upon many occasions, especially in my early career. Women were not always treated graciously. Uh, And I deeply appreciated that uh, Jim did not make a distinction in the way he treated Vincent Ostrom and the way he treated Lynn Ostrom. Uh, Buchanan and Telleck wrote a book that was one of the major influences in my graduate program and on my dissertation and on my entire empirical work ever since. I was studying at UCLA and it was a very interesting group. I got used to working with uh, economists and political scientists back and forth and did quite a bit of uh, formal work in economics, even though some people deny not that. But we had Charlie Tebow and Dwayne Marvik and Jack Hirschleifer and a vigorous debate going on back and forth uh, reading a great deal of Buchanan's work and others. They were struggling to understand how citizens could solve problems in urban areas and there was no presumption among any of these colleagues that citizens were dumb and unable to solve problems and that has come into our literature later. Mm-hmm. What Jim started uh, off and has continued and is always looking at the role of citizens the, um, in fact, Thibault and, and Vincent Ostrom worked very hard to try to articulate why having a single large government unit serving a metropolitan area was not conducive to either self-governance or efficiency. And if we go back to uh, page 140, no, 114 of, of Calchis, but um, on uh, page 114, there's a comment, both the decentralization and size factors suggests that when possible, collective action should be organized in small rather than large political units. Organizations in large units may be justified only by the overwhelming importance of the externalities that remain after localized and decentralized collectivization. Somehow we have forgotten this core idea and forgotten that A lot of people, students come in and they they ask what is uh, democracy and they say it's voting. Democracy is defined by voting for officials, not by people being engaged in constitutional decision-making and people have lost the idea of a constitution some of my students come in and think, well, that's just a piece of paper written by white men at a national level. And the idea that citizens craft their own rules and really struggle with how to get things organized at a local community as well as all the way up has been lost. And so I'm, I'm here to appreciate Jim and just tell all of the young people in this audience, go forth, uh, teach his work, and there's a lot of empirical work now that supports it. And uh, I'll go over just some of that briefly, but this is really important. So what we have now is a pretty intensive research program that has looked at uh, the concept, going out of this was the concept of polycentricity. And the term has confused many people, but the idea was, okay, if you have a small unit that does have uh, some kind of things like a school district or a local park or uh, any of a variety of things that could be organized at a small level, there are other things in the same area that need to be organized at large, and they're not competitive if you have a polycentric system with small, medium, large, and very large then you may be able to have the calculus of consent developed and worked out. And our research has shown this to be very important. The um, One of the places that we were able to do studies was on policing in urban America. Um, I've kidded people sometimes that I've ridden in more police cars than I think most people in the audience have done. I visited more jails. Um, and I've seen uh, the ways that police officers who are in a community where local people have constituted. The way they deal with citizens is different than when you're in a metropolitan area, police department, huge one, with 350 or 500 officers, and they are not seeing themselves as responsible to citizens. They have a union, they have certain hours, uh, there's just an entirely different mentality. And if you're in a police car for eight hours with officers serving these areas, they don't know the area. And whenever I would be in a police car with a small, uh, an officer from a small department, they would start telling me, now over here in this park, this is where a lot of the kids play and we're uh, nervous now. There's starting to be a problem where uh, there are some gangs forming and they're, they're watching. They're watching early. They sometimes will take someone to someone's home in order to discuss it. They don't put them in jail like this. In the big cities, it's put them in jail right away. And the problem of putting young people in jail instead of trying to figure out how to help them become real citizens and become a real part of a democratic system is just dramatic. So um, we have an immense amount of evidence. The front of, well, we have to have large because there are economies of scale. The presumption is that uh, people who are local officials held accountable to citizens won't figure that out. Again, there's some smart people out there. We're not part of them, the citizens aren't part of them. If they come in and they figure it out and somehow we've just gotta get in our teaching, the work of Buchanan early, so that uh, students learn about the role of citizens in making rules, collective constitutional choice, but constitutional choice for a neighborhood, constitutional choice about that neighborhood park where there are problems. So now what do we do in terms of which parents start to go there at what time so that we're sure that we have parents involved in that local park? That's constitutional choice to decide what rules we're gonna use, et cetera, about a local park. And uh, they can be good examples for your students to try to understand where people have those ways of organizing and where they don't. Obviously, one of the other places that uh, there's been immense confusion is uh, something called common property. There for a long time, especially after uh, Garrett Hardin wrote his uh, Tragedy of the Commons, the presumption was that you had private property and you had government property and anything else was nothing, and people called it common property. They didn't recognize that if you call it property, that does mean that some people have some rights, but the term common property meant nothing. Uh, and then the presumption was that, uh, in light of people having nothing, uh, they couldn't work their own way, they were trapped, they couldn't work it out own way. And we've had recommendation after recommendation to have the very large that, uh, they're challenging in this, as the way to protect nature. Uh, and yes, some very large reserves make very good sense. But um, what we're finding, we've just finished a, not finished, but we're working on a study of 256 forests around the world. And we are looking at the factors that affect whether um, the forests are more sustainable and regrowing. And you'll be very surprised at the factor that comes across time after time after time as one of the important ones. And it's whether the people who are being served, supposedly, uh, living around, think it important enough to invest themselves in monitoring. So what it means is that the kind of long-term interest that you get here, that citizens can have a really long-term interest in something if they have some control over it then if they have some control, and we find if they can harvest at least some things, they have a long time horizon. <clears throat> and with a long time horizon, they're then much more interested in maintaining and monitoring and keeping that system going. When they have no long-term time horizon, some big guy comes along with a big truck and a lot of money, and it says, what's the best way into the forest? And I'll give you X if you'll be quiet. And they're quiet you know, they have no long-term. They're not citizens. And we're consistently making people not citizens. And I keep getting people to read Buchanan so they understand what it means to be a citizen. And uh, I think I'll stop there because um, uh, we want to give Jim an opportunity. But uh, if there's anyone in this room who has not read all, well, I probably have not read all of Jim's work. He's written so much, I probably couldn't read it all. <laughs> but if we're going to be talking about the sustainability of a democratic system over time and real empirical findings about that, I think Jim Buchanan's work is absolutely foundational. And thank God I read it as a graduate student and I've been reading it ever since because... I would not, well, I wouldn't be here tonight if that, but for that. Thank you very
1: much. You. Eleanor said she wouldn't be here but for that. No, if I hadn't written that review of calculus of consent and gotten to know Gordon Tullock and Jim Buchanan, I wouldn't be here because it was they who recommended me to the then president of George Mason University as the uh, dean for their law school. So I, I owe a special debt. James Buchanan is, as you know, professor of economics at George Mason and winner of the 1986 Nobel Prize in Economic Science. Best known for developing the public choice theory of economics, which changed the way economists analyze economic and political decision making, not just economists. Dr. Buchanan's work opened the door for the examination of how politicians' self-interest and non-economic forces affect government economic policy as the royal swedish academy of science foundation noted when it awarded the nobel to jim buchanan buchanan has transferred the concept of gain derived from mutual exchange between individuals to the realm of political decision making i won't read the rest of it but engrave those words on your minds jim we'd like to hear your comments
4: but I, I, I'm not going to say very much at all. Uh, I appreciate very much the fact that Amara Sin and, and Lynn Ostrom have, have agreed to come and give this talk, and I appreciate their remarks in, in, in every respect. I've lo- known both of them for a long time. Uh, Lynn was, of course, one of the early uh, founders, so to speak, of public choice. She and Vince Ostrom were there along with the rest of us early on before we called it public choice before much happened and uh uh, we appreciate her being here and i was very thrilled when she was awarded the nobel prize last last year uh and we've we've all followed her work on the commons Uh, she really has affected the literature a great deal as far as the goes i remember i've known him since uh, Probably in the 60s, I'm not sure he would know maybe early 70s. But I remember I first met him at a conference in Siena. Two things I remember about that conference was I remember uh, Joe Stiglitz running around with a bunch of sniveling kids and his first <laughs> wife, Charlotte, and before, before uh, he, he broke up, I remember the uh, difficulty they were having with those children around that time. <laughs> And uh, Then I also remember that we went to some kind of musical performance uh, down in, in Siena, and we were supposed to meet to go back to the hotel, at, uh, back to the monastery hotel at uh, midnight. And uh, most of us got to the bus, and the rest of them we uh, were not uh, uh, around, and we sent out a working party to go get, bring them back. And the working party also joined the others drinking in the bar. So that's, I remember those things about that conference. <laughs> 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 but what I uh, uh, have remembered Marja Sin for uh, is really, I have watched him through the years. At that time, he was a social welfare function maximizer of the first order. I've always thought of him as to be one of the relatively few amongst my peers in economics who really uh, makes up his mind on the basis of the argument, on the basis of the reasoning of the argument, rather than coming at it from a preconceived position. And I do think that he has understood my work and my critique of Arrow better Than anybody else, really. I think his presidential address to the American Indian Association spilled that out in in, in some detail. uh, I learned from it. Now, for the first time, I began to see and appreciate the other side of that argument. I had never done that before, and that was a good contribution to my own uh, intellectual development, so to speak. So I'm very pleased that he's here and, and. have continued to be interested in what he does. I don't know how he does so much, as a matter of fact. That's hard for me to say. I know very little about this whole affair we're in today. Uh, they've kept me out of it. Maybe it's appropriate that I have been kept out of it. But I don't know what I was supposed to do and say uh, in this occasion. But uh, I'm very pleased, as I said to start with, I'm very pleased to be here and I'm pleased that Henry and Amartya and Lynn are are here, Uh, and I think that's a great honor for me to to have have that happen. Uh,
1: And uh, our next speaker has a job that uh, is job description best summed up in two words, herding cats. That's what the president of a university does. Since Alan Merton became George Mason's fifth president in July of 96, George Mason has become the fastest-growing university in Virginia and gained national and international acclaim for a number of significant initiatives and achievements. Prior to coming to George Mason, President Merton was dean of the Johnson Graduate School of Management of Cornell and has held numerous academic appointments in both engineering and business in the United States, as well as academic and business positions in Hungary and France. He serves on the board of directors of the Greater Washington Board of Trade, Northern Virginia Technology Council, a real estate investment trust, mutual fund trust, and a banking institution he has got some problems these days. He was previously chair of the National Research Council's Committee on Workforce Needs and Information Technology and a member of the Virginia Governor's Blue, Blue Ribbon Commission on Higher Education. President Merton has been recognized for his contributions to the Northern Virginia technology community, as a leader of the greater Washington, D.C. business community, as well as for promoting volunteerism and service to the community. Great pleasure to introduce Alan Merton.
5: Welcome to George Mason University. Welcome on behalf of over 33,000 students. It's truly an honor and privilege to be president of George Mason and be able to participate in events such as this. I want to thank Professor Ostrom and Professor Sand and the Liberty Fund for contributing to a, this truly important event at your place. Over the last several years as we designed this building and then it was being constructed, every once in a while someone would pull me aside, looking for sand in check and said, what are you building that building for? And the answer is <laughs> this kind of event. Looking out at all of you and listening to the questions discussion that I had in the last 15, 20 minutes, is the reason we built this building. Obviously, many other uses of the building are gonna occur beyond uh, academic events, but this is the main reason for what we have done here at George Mason University. This is truly an exciting university, and now we have a venue in which we can do even more. <coughs> Having the microphone gives me a chance to say a few things about two of my favorite people. The first one is Henry Manning. <laughs> Henry Manning has done more for George Mason University than many people will ever understand. What Henry did take the law school from a very you know, almost humble beginning to a law school that was first regionally, and then nationally, and internationally respected. The that has made an enormous difference, not just to the law school, but to the entire George Mason University. Thank you, Henry. I congratulate all of you, particularly the Liberty Fund, for recognizing Jim Buchanan and for what he has done for George Mason University, what he's done for academia in the United States and beyond, but what he's done in so many respects in terms of taking very complex topics and explaining them and understanding them in a way that is truly unique. Jim Buchanan is a unique individual. When we look at the life of George Mason University, he's still a very young, University. It's the arrival of Jim and his receiving of the Nobel Prize that was really the first big star in terms of what was happening at George Mason University. And we believe a predictor of what could and then what has happened at George Mason University. Jim, thank you for everything that you've done for this university.
1: The next uh, speaker. Uh, Dan Hauser is chairman and professor of economics at George Mason, where he also directs the Interdisciplinary Center for Economic Science, an experimental economics and neuroeconomics research center founded by Nobel laureate Vernon Smith in 2001 and lately of George Mason. He is also editor-in-chief of the Journal of Neuroscience, Psychology and Economics and serves on the editorial boards of a variety of scientific journals. Dr. Hauser has published extensively in economics, psychology, and general science journals. He is known for his research on the role of reputation, emotion, and emotional expression. His publications have provided fundamental contributions to our understanding of markets and their connections to cooperation in human groups. Thank you. Dan?
6: Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Henry. It is, uh, indeed, an honor and a privilege uh, for me to share this day, this stage uh, with uh, this group of uh, distinguished scholars uh, who come together today uh, to honor James McKinney. Um One surely uh, cannot overstate Jim's importance to George Mason University or the crucial impact that he had in creating prominence for our economics department. Jim and his colleagues at the uh, Center for the Study of Public Choice uh, moved their scholarly activities to Mason in 1983. Why did you make this choice? Well, he made it in part uh, due to the spirit of entrepreneurship that he founded Mason. And that is a spirit that continues to characterize our department and this university and that is largely because Jim came here with his amazing colleagues and promoted those ideas and those uh, 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 that way of uh, producing scholarly activity. Moreover, in moving the center to Mason economics, uh, Jim and his center colleagues provided a crucially important early impetus for our departments rapidly and continually increasing visibility. And that played an exceptionally important role in fostering the departments, as well as the university's international reputation for scholarly excellence. Now, June found substantial productivity in his new home. Uh, During his first years at Mason, he made important additions to his established Constitutional Political Economy Research Program. That's the program, of course, that would lead to his Nobel Prize in 1986. Uh, And in addition, He was inspired to begin new research with his center colleagues on norms, on the anti-commons, and on increasing returns to scale, and in addition to a variety of other, other areas. Well, that's a tremendous amount of energy, and it's no surprise that in light of that energy, that scholarly energy, he became a significant attractor of students, funds, visitors, all of which made the center, the economics department can be this university a more interesting place for all of us to spend time each day and a much more productive place for our joint scholarly research activities ultimately having that sort of energy intellectual energy around it's just it's why we come to work each day it's what makes it fun and uh jim and his amazing colleagues at the center for study of public choice provided that initial seat what became and continues to become uh, our department. In addition to this, Jim Helds, sort of on the practical side of what we have to do, uh, Jim has been extremely giving of his time uh, in helping Mason in the department in sort of fundraising activities. He's attended all sorts of university events. He's lent his name and his Nobel Prize to a wide variety of efforts in this regard, and for his generosity, surely uh, we are all uh, very grateful. But we're here, you know, not not just to recognize Jim, of course, Jim's contributions to Mason to to economics, but of course his his lifetime of extraordinary scholarly achievements, Uh, and of these there are many. We've heard the distinguished panelists speak of many of these. He's helped us to better understand externalities, the burden of the public debt, the uh, logic of clubs, the importance of increasing returns, and uh, many other specific uh, points that all of us, as students of Jim, uh, continue to strive to absorb. So, so there's all of that, but, but you know, I, I have a bunch of students, uh, some of whom are uh, on the market. In fact, two students that I have on the market this year are here in the audience now. And uh, and you know what? What I tell them, and what we tell all of our students, is you need a message that you're going to take to your grandfather, to your grandmother, to your mom and dad. You know, the message that is going to sort of bring it home to them. Why are you doing what you're doing, right? What's what's the re- what, what's sort of the thing that impacts with that group, right? In addition to the deep scholarly points that we've heard brought up today as well as Charles Rowley's uh, question earlier, the, the question of the day. These are deep and important scholarly points. But so what's the what's the sort of grandfather, grandmother point? Well, I think that um, Donald Rowe, who was previous chairman of this department and currently is the director of the Center for the Study of Public Choice, he and I were chatting about this at one point, and I think he and I agree that, you know, one one sort of message of this type that comes out of Jim's work, is that political activity ultimately does not fundamentally differ from market activity. Jim's work has the important message that all of us can understand, that we need to avoid being distracted by labels and by superficial appearances. Politicians might very well be called public servants, but being steeped in canonism, we understand that the root motivation of public service is no different than the root motivation of corporate CEOs, lumberjacks, taxi drivers, or college professors. A bureaucracy might be called the Consumer Product Safety Commission, but being steeped in buchananism, we look not at its name, but at the incentives that are faced by its operatives to judge how likely this agency really is to promote consumer safety as opposed to other goals. It's an important lesson that we can all understand. By challenging us to understand that exchanges take place not only within conventional markets, not only when exchanges are mediated by money, but in center of ubiquitous and many-faced phenomena of human action, Jim Buchanan expanded the scope and the subject matter of economics intelligently, creatively and in ways that continue to resonate with exceptional importance to all of us. So, thank you very much, Jim, for all you have done for our department, for our university, and for our profession. We all wish you the warmest and most sincere congratulations on this award.
1: The uh, next comment uh, represents something I take particular pleasure in. One hears a uh, vast amount of, uh, about money going from the government to universities to support work of one sort and another. I can tell you that uh, on a productivity basis, that government money doesn't begin to match up to what the private sector and the foundations of this country provide. None, I think, has been more significant in this regard than the Liberty Fund of Indianapolis. Our next speaker, Chris Talley, is the president and CEO of the Liberty Fund, a private educational foundation established to encourage the study of the ideal of a society of free and responsible individuals. The foundation develops, supervises and finances its own educational activities to foster thought and encourage discourse on enduring issues pertaining to liberty. And it has been notoriously successful in that regard. That's an aside. Prior to leading the Liberty Fund, Mr. Talley served as president and CEO of the People's Loan and Trust Company in Winchester, Indiana. He has served on the board of trustees at the Winchester Foundation for 30 years, is currently the board's chairman. He has been on the board of directors for the Peer and Enid Goodrich Foundation for 20 years. I might add that Peer Goodrich was the founder of the Liberty Fund, and he has acted as treasurer since 1992. It's a great pleasure to introduce Chris Talley.
7: Thank you very much, Henry. I appreciate that and those kind words for the Liberty Fund. We very much appreciate that. So to Mr. Chairman, distinguished panelists, Professor Buchanan and guests, uh, it is indeed a privilege uh, on behalf of Liberty Fund to participate in this uh, this day's activity and the uh, celebration of the works of James Buchanan. When I took the proposition for Liberty Fund's involvement in the uh, the day's activity to our board of directors, they received it very warmly and approved it uh, very enthusiastically and on the promise. <laughs> We're delighted to be here. Liberty Fund owes a debt of gratitude to Professor Buchanan, and I'm going to talk very briefly about uh, the reasons for that. Professor Buchanan was uh, one of the first people to be involved in Liberty Fund's program when we became operational in the mid-1970s. In fact, he was one of our most active participants in our conference program, occurring during, mostly during the first 20 years of our operational activity, having participated in some 100 conferences uh, over the uh, tenure uh, up to the current date. He was first involved as an author in a symposium held in 1975, I believe it was in June. The title of that uh, symposium and, uh, was Individual Liberty and Government Policies in the 1970s. His second conference, which he participated in as a conferee, was entitled Economic Planning in the American Constitutional System, which in fact was directed by Professor Henry Mann. During the late 1970s and in the early part of the 1980s, uh, Professor Buchanan and his colleagues were actively involved in a series of Liberty Fund conferences and there was a variety of uh, topics for discussion. These conferences were not only beneficial for Liberty Fund's educational purpose, but they were very instructional and instrumental in helping us set out how our programs should be run and uh, provide a, uh, help provide a temple for how the conference program has developed and continues to develop today. Now, 2010 is the year of uh, our 50th anniversary of Liberty Fund having been founded officially on August the 18th of 1960. I mention this because as a part of the celebration of this 50th anniversary we decided to replicate the first 10 conferences that were organized and uh, uh, by Mr. Goodrich, uh, our founder, and he participated in nine of those, was involved in the organization of the 10th, and then passed away a few months before the 10th one was uh, exercised and executed. And I mentioned those, uh, and I want to mention the common themes that ran through those 10 conferences as we've uh, replicated them this past year or so, and just to, to, to give you a sense of the relevance of what Mr. Goodrich was concerned about 50 years ago to today. Those themes could be generally described as power and uh, the corruptive influences of power, education, war and international relations, and money and uh, monetary inflation. Uh, I think you would all agree with me that those four general themes are really topical in the current environment. I would also like to mention, again, because of the timeliness the timelessness, rather, of, the, uh, of these titles or these topics, five of the conferences in which Professor Buchanan was involved, some as a writer of a paper, some as a participant. Uh, and just mentioning those five, I'll give you the titles, and I think you'll see the relevance for today. Federal fiscal responsibility in March of 1976, wealth redistribution and in the income tax in January of 1977. The Burden of Governments. Uh, he was an author of a paper in that conference was in, which was in August of 1980. The Moral, Ethical, and Economic Foundations of Capitalism, uh, which was conducted in February of 1981. And the Constitutional Constraints on Government, which has been mentioned on the panel here just this afternoon uh, in June of 1981. So you might say, the old cliche, the more things change, the more they say the same, and uh, it, makes, it makes all of us at Liberty Fund want to work even harder and promote the educational purpose for which our foundation was established. Most recently and most appropriately, Professor Buchanan attended a conference about a year ago in September of 09, and it was most appropriately entitled James Buchanan's Constitutional Liberty. I was also involved in our publishing program. Uh, early on in 1979, we published uh, his, his book, What Should Economists Do? And then as, as Professor Beckie uh, mentioned in his uh, opening remarks, the collected works of James McCann as published by Liberty Fund in 1999 is at the back of the room. I'll break for a commercial. Get your orders in early and get them in often. Uh, We'd be delighted to supply uh, any of you. We have them in stock and are ready to ship if you'd like to avail yourself of that opportunity. We were delighted with the proposition of being able to reproduce these works. It's entirely appropriate in other ways that uh, we'd be involved with this program, and it's entirely appropriate that these Buchanan collective works appear under the Liberty Fund Not only is there a long-standing association, rather, between Professor Buchanan and Liberty Fund, as I've just mentioned, but there's also a centrality of liberty as an organizing principle in Buchanan's writings. As Professor Manning indicated, Liberty Fund was established to explore the ideal of society of free and responsible individuals. Professor Buchanan's work undoubtedly has been devoted to precisely this exploration. And for that, Professor Buchanan, Liberty Fund is forever grateful.
4: Thank you very much, uh, everybody. Thank everybody. Uh, I, I, this has been quite an occasion. I didn't, uh, they didn't inform me very much about this at all, so I'm kind of winging it in all respects at this, uh, at this situation. Uh, in particular, I didn't understand until I got a rumor last night that there might be some substantial pecuniary aspects, so I don't know quite what to do now. And, and with the uh, stipend here, I uh, appreciate it very much and, and understand the importance that this this is. But I am reminded of situation of two institutions that I've been involved with that uh, has some relevance, and perhaps I should take their advice and and, uh, emulate them. I was in the Navy, of course, in World War II and uh, in the Pacific, spent most of my time at Pearl Harbor. And the Officers Club at Pearl Harbor uh, made a good profit from their bar uh, during all the ships came came in. The boys would spend a lot of money uh, drinking and the Officers Club would accumulate profits, but they didn't know what to do with the profits. So what they did, every two months, they'd throw a huge party in with free drinks, they use up their profits in that direction. Well, I found out also, I was later associated with, in Cambridge for a year with Sydney Sussex College, and uh, the colleges there have a tradition, goes back to the medieval times, in which uh, they have an audit feast every year. An audit feast is when they take an audit of the college's finances, they uh, find out those who have made a profit will throw a big feast. And so they call it the audit audit feast. And so they spend all their, the profit that the colleges make by, by having these feasts every year. And as a matter of fact, as a side note, let me say that I've only twice in my life uh, been to a white tie occasion where I had to put on the white tie once was, of course, the Nobel ceremony. The other was when I was, was invited to the Audit Feast over at Trinity College by Sir Dennis Robertson. So that was quite an occasion for, for me. Anyway, so maybe I should just have a big feast and invite everybody here <laughs> and uh, <laughs> send, this, send, send this type in. But I, I can find better uses for it than I am <laughs> sure. Uh, But I must admit, as you get uh, to be 90 and almost 91, uh, on several dimensions, the types of expenditure you would like to do personally are no longer possible for, for uh. But let me, uh, let me uh, say one or two things that I think of. There's some relevance, especially to the relevance of this particular center for Study of spontaneous order or spontaneous coordination. I do think that we have failed as economists to teach that simple lesson. My professor Frank Knight again used to say, economics is really very, very simple. But once you get to the point where you can understand that it's very simple, you, it takes a long time to get there. And a great many economists have never got there even yet, even though they call themselves professional economists. To understanding how the Spontaneous order of the marketplace works is, I think, a a great achievement. If you can convey that to your students, to uh, that's that's really all we ought to do. We ought not be fooling around with a lot of these intricacies. But and it's very important to understand how a market works. But the market doesn't work everywhere, always, all the time. And I think one of the mistakes that was made. A huge mistake that was made was, was the per, uh, attitude that became so widespread and so widespread accepted, widely accepted was this notion that the market works uh, in all respects and without w- without its own laws and without being per, uh, constrained by laws and institutions that are proper. Uh, there, the University of Chicago magazine a year ago featured an article. Uh, lead article called, Is Chicago School Thinking to Blame? And uh, it was using the Chicago School thinking in the the context of that article was this uh, view that the market works in all respects. The uh, um, view associated with uh, Fama and really goes back to Lucas and the rational expectations and all this stuff. I do think uh, that had more influence on a lot of the thinking in the leading up to the financial crisis than we give it credit for, perhaps. And I wrote a paper that I gave in Richmond in June to the effect that there's an old Chicago school and a new Chicago school. And the old Chicago school, which I associated myself with, thinking of Frank Knight and Henry Simons in particular, they would never have counseled the view that the market works under any and all circumstances. The market works only if it's constrained by proper rules and proper constraints. And that that idea was simply lacking or missing. And uh, I think uh, we must recognize that the market cannot generate its own rules. Laissez-faire will work given the constraints of the, uh, if they're properly drawn, but laissez-faire or leaving the loan will not generate its own rules. And uh, that it has to be because rules by the nature of them, as several of us mentioned a long time ago, uh, rules are themselves kind of public goods in the Samuelsonian sense, they're collective goods. We all live by them. We all have to be involved with them. So you can't expect a market with ordinary entrepreneurial activity to generate the rules. And so I, I think that gives you an explanation to some extent of, of uh, how we were so complacent, not only economists, but everybody else was so complacent as these new financial instruments were developed and somehow this sat back in our rocking chair and, and said, well, the market will work it out. I think that was just a, a fallacy of major, major uh, import. And uh, perhaps had we recognized it and had economists recognized what was going on, they might have been able to, to change that set of, set of attitudes. So that's my current Sort of line of inquiry that I'm trying to do right now, research program on, on this. We're, we're kind of working on it. So I think there's more to be done. I do think that the damage has been done. Of course, the great crises need not have happened had we paid attention and had we put in the proper constraints early on. But I don't trust the government enough now to put in those constraints. And so we're liable to do more harm than good with what we try to do in the corrective way. So we're suffering the consequences, and that's the reason to go back to the earlier question. The reason I am uh, a bit a bit pessimistic looking forward looking at the objective of reality. And I think I want to correct Henry on only one point. Jeff Brennan and I wrote two books together, not one, <laughs> two books together. So And thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much.